You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. We wild the child. Here is your host, Emily. Hello, welcome back to episode 27 of the Untaming Podcast. Hello. I have both of my kids here today while I'm recording this intro. Would you like to say anything? I am back in this interview today with Peter Michael Bauer after our lovely guest host Mary Francelle hosted the last three episodes. My husband and I recently finished watching season two of Succession. As entertaining as it is, I think I was more riveted and revolted with its accurate portrayal of how rampant patriarchy is in our culture. Now I could go on in many different directions with this, but right now I'm talking specifically about the hierarchy and power struggles that patriarchy produces. So many aspects of childhood have been influenced by patriarchy to the point that it is normalised, like birth, to the point where birth is now seen as something to fear and to be managed in an institution by other people, with little to no control by the parents. Even though there may be female midwives and female obstetricians, they're still operating under the patriarchal model of hierarchy, you know, with power and control over the actual person giving birth. And they, in turn, are also trapped in that hierarchy by others who have power and control over them. Please don't take any of this personally. This is not um, blaming and shaming individuals. It's pointing out the unnatural societal infrastructure that currently surrounds us, which makes meeting these fundamental needs almost impossible like like breastfeeding even though our biological norm is an absolute bare minimum of two years of breastfeeding with a more average norm of closer to four years of age our culture sees this as disturbingly long because for so many generations now the mother has been encouraged to fill the baby up on solids or milk substitutes so they are no longer hungry for breast milk This is so, you know, the mother can go back to work, whether that's paid work or growing food out in the fields work or simply the work of procreating. And sadly, this is all to the detriment of the older child who is not getting the breast milk that they need. And it's to the detriment of the mother whose body has not taken the necessary, I believe it's two to four years to replenish itself of the nutrients lost during pregnancy. And on top of that, it's also detrimental to the younger child who will be developing in the malnourished body of its mother. But hey, the ultimate goal is just to build a population of workers who will be submitting to this hierarchy, right? It makes me think of a tweet I saw recently from Darshan Narvaez, the neuroscience researcher I interviewed in the very first episode of this podcast. She wrote, uh, when babies are dishonoured, we create dysregulated, disconnected, unnested, destructive dominators. Which is how this dominating hierarchy prevails in our society. Well, not just prevails, but snowballs. In the last couple of episodes with James McKenna on biologically normal infant sleep and Nils Bergman on kangaroo mother care are evidence of how wrong our Western patriarchal culture has gone with regards to separating a baby from its mother and a mother from her baby. I could talk about schooling too, but we'll leave that for another time. This patriarchal system places children, our beautiful, cheerful, curious, innocent children, at the bottom of the hierarchy, as the most inferior, as unequal to adults. Yet this goes against 99% of our history, you know, the history for which we have evolved as human beings. Our evolutionary norm is not to have this patriarchy, it's to be egalitarian. I consider myself a feminist in the true sense of the word, as equal to males, which is really what egalitarianism is, that all people are equal. Uh, Sadly, this notion of patriarchy confuses some people into thinking that dismantling patriarchy is as simple as putting females into roles of power but that's still operating within a patriarchal system. I'm not saying we shouldn't have women in roles of power. That's the way of our world right now. So, of course, that's an improvement on our more recent history. 
that really we shouldn't have roles of power full stop. Because, and I'm power, um, yeah, I'm power phrasing from a post Peter Michael Bauer made a few days ago. In the hierarchies of civilization that have existed post-capitalism, the majority of privileges have been toward white, middle-class men. Hierarchies always make the poor poorer and the rich richer. It's not just females and children who are lower on the hierarchy. It's the poor. It's the people of colour, indigenous peoples, peoples with disabilities, and members of the LGBTQ community. This rant is relevant to today's episode with Peter on rewilding and agriculture, as will become apparent when his interview starts. But another reason I am bringing this up is due to some feedback I received following the release of episode 24. I'm talking about Mary's interview with Alyssa Schnell on inducing lactation. I was genuinely shocked and saddened to receive some negativity in relation to that episode from listeners who have a worldview that is prejudiced against people who identify as LGBTQ simply because they subscribe to a patriarchal view of feminism, which is a bit of an oxymoron. Um, Maybe it's just me, but it seems contradictory to want equality for women but be opposed to equality for all people. And as well as being contradictory, it really just goes against our evolutionary norm of egalitarianism. So I want to clarify some things. First, understanding that adoption and breastfeeding of other people's children occurs in Indigenous societies. And secondly, acknowledging that we are in an industrialised world, so I don't want to exclude surrogate parents who wish to breastfeed and rewild their children. Um, I also really appreciated the extent to which Mary and Alyssa were inclusive of all variations of female, because as tidy as it would be to have everyone fit into the binary male and female boxes, that's not reality. Even in indigenous societies, transgender people exist, and are sometimes revered. Therefore, I will continue to promote true egalitarianism, which is opposed to the erasure of transgendered people, And unrelated but equally important, egalitarianism is also opposed to the exclusion of indigenous uh, people of colour. So just a bit of food for thought there while you listen to this ad. I started this podcast because I couldn't find any others like it. We cover a lot of aspects related to attachment parenting, but attachment parenting practices, while important to rewilding, are only a part of a much bigger focus when it comes to rewilding children. Things like natural human movement, nutrition, education, uh, psychology and the microbiome are equally as important. And then understanding how the influence of broader issues like agriculture and politics affect our ability to rewild. That is why I'm so excited to share today's interview with Peter Michael Bauer with you. I don't think you can really have a good grasp on rewilding if you don't understand how significantly our lifeway has been affected by agriculture. And if that doesn't seem like a subject that interests you, well, we also talk about population growth, slave labour, ownership, taxation, Jane Goodall's work with chimpanzees, uh, climate change, and why rewilding children is not just a fad, it is literally essential. As you'll hear, all that is directly related to agriculture. Peter and I chatted for so long that I ended up splitting his interview into two episodes, so check back in next week when we will be talking about education and the schooling system. But let's end the suspense now and hear what Peter has to say. Thirty-eight-year-old Peter Michael Bauer was born in, grew up in and still lives in Portland, Oregon with his girlfriend. Peter is an anthropologist, experimental archaeologist and historian. His work focuses on the social and environmental impacts of the Neolithic Revolution and how understanding these impacts can provide us with solutions to the sixth mass extinction. Since the early 2000s, he has been an integral catalyst in the human rewilding movement. Peter created the first international online rewilding forum, wrote a book on rewilding called Rewild or Die, 
founded the organization Rewild Portland, where he teaches classes, and created the annual North American Rewilding Conference. He has also recently begun the Rewilding podcast. Last night, he had about seven to eight hours of sleep, and for lunch today, he had carrot sticks and some chicken breast with spices. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I came across the term rewilding about three years ago, and to me, it was a a validating comfort to finally have a word that encompassed my own entire personal belief system about things I thought were unrelated. And I understand the term was first coined in the 80s by the author Jesse Wolf Harden with regards to human rewilding. But I really appreciate that you have been able to not just help to spread the rewilding life way locally with Rewild Portland, but also globally to the rest of us online with your writings and podcasts. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) So having listened to your own podcast and many other interviews you have done, I promised you before this interview that I wouldn't ask you for your elevator pitch on rewilding. What I am (laughs) going to do is explain why I think rewilding children is important and then ask your thoughts on it. Cool. So yeah, it seems that the more a person learns about rewilding, you know, that is returning to a more natural state, the process of undoing domestication, the more it becomes glaringly obvious, to me at least, that the way society is currently raising and interacting with our children is directly causing all the issues in our world today. Climate change, deforestation, patriarchy, prejudice, economics, politics, uh, war, our mental and physical health, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. But all of these issues literally stem from our societal obsession to disregard the fundamental needs of our children. A good friend asked me last year why I chose to have kids, knowing how much damage overpopulation was doing to the planet. And while there is probably an element of selfishness there, since my strongest desire has always been to have children, there's also the realisation that even if I don't have kids for the sake of the planet, that's not going to stop others from procreating. Sure. So what seems to be a more effective idea would be to just meet all the needs of our children so they don't grow up to become the over-consuming planet destroyers that the rest of us have been <laughs> for countless <laughs> generations. Yeah. So that is my goal, at least, with putting this podcast out there. And to me, there really is no other option. And the title of your book sums it up perfectly because... There is no alternative. We literally have to rewild or die. So would you agree with that? Or have I started off just way too intense? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, yeah, I I agree with that entirely. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think there's a couple of things I wanted to throw in there. Um, One is that while Jesse Wolf Harden um, coined the term rewilding, it was more just giving a a word to something that already exists and has already Mm -hmm. existed since the dawn of civilization. You know, I want to, since the dawn of civilization, people have been resisting it. Right. And and we call that rewilding in this day and age. Um, But it's existed all throughout history. Another example might be, you know, usually the terms that we have for rewilders are terms written by the who are the ones that actually write history, the ones in, in charge that are growing, uh, you know, agricultural grains and states and the power structures decide what to label those people. So even a word like the word heathen, for example, the heath is a geographical location. A heath is an ecological phenomenon um, where the plant heather, which also gets its name from heath, grows um, in these like alpine sort of areas that are really acidic and difficult to farm. And so in those farming areas in like northern Europe, for example, a lot of people escaped civilization to rewild in the heaths because it was a zone where you could graze animals, but maintain a physical distance uh, away from the power structures of civilization. And so, of course, those power structures hated those people because they were not taxable. And so they labeled them heathens because they lived in the heaths away from the civilized center. So that word heathen is a rewilding per people. You know, nowadays, like contemporary heathenism is a religion that has nothing really to do whatsoever with the geographical heaths of northern Europe um, and other heaths in the world. But that idea of heathenism um, and the negative connotations that come with it are intertwined with the fact that these people rejected the power structures of civilization and existed outside of them. Um, so I just wanted to say that in regard to like coining the term and thinking about it. 
that it is mm. a physiological reaction to a lot of people and plants and animals to reject domestication. And so that process has existed since the first people who tried to domesticate things also. Mm. Um, so it's just a way of kind of framing the conversation to make it more clear what's happening, to use the word rewilding in, yeah. fr from my perspective, right? It gives it a power. It gives us power to resist the dominant paradigms that are domesticating us to recognize um, through using those words. Mm. And I should, I think I should add two other notes there that um, in terms of population, because globally the population growth is slowing, but even if we do decrease our population, it's not going to make any difference if we don't change our behaviors of overconsumption. Absolutely. And the majority of population growth um, is tied directly to the way in which civilizations subsist. Civilizations want to, I mean, we all we all say, you know, they're based on growth. Capitalism is based on growth, blah, blah, blah. That stems from ancient states where the power came from the number of people that you had under your control. And so states were uh, rapidly, intentionally growing their populations for labor to amass wealth for an elite class. So the idea of population growth, you know, is directly tied to the way that states function. And while we're, you know, we've reached a curb or, you know, the, the the global population is leveling out and not or not even leveling out, just not growing as fast as it has been over the last 10,000 years. That's because there's nowhere left to farm. That's because there's no more uh, resource extraction at the at the level of technology that we had. And civilization was collapsing 400 years ago before um, oil and the Industrial Revolution and the Green Revolution made us able to terraform landscapes on an astronomical level that would not have been possible without fossil fuels. And so the only way that our population has continued to grow exponentially in the last 400 years is because of those technological advancements or what they what they call as advancements. But really, you know, what we advance in technology, we decrease ecologically. So while our systems might be more complex in some ways, the ecosystems that we rely on are losing complexity because we are dismantling it. So there's this weird trade-off of the technological quote-unquote progress with the sixth extinction and the dismantling of the complexity of ecosystems that we rely on. So it's very frightening to think about it in, in that regard. Um, and also kind of... Um, the opposite of frightening, <laughs> uh, freeing to, to realize what all of the systems are in place and that they're collapsing and that rewilding is basically like riding the roller coaster down. You know, it's it's a free uh, it's the return to the freedoms that humans had in prehistory. It's the return to a deeper connection to the earth. It's a return to our autonomy. Um, and so when I think about that, when I think about the collapse of civilization, for example, I don't think about it as the end of the world. I think about it as a collapse of a political structure that has been forcing people to live a particular way for 5,000 to 10,000 years. And what we're going to witness in the next whatever <laughs> hundred years or however much witness in the rest of our lifetimes is a huge transformation that will be both ugly and beautiful. Um, and I totally agree with you that it it starts with the way we engage with children because those people are going to be the people who um, continue on the traditions uh, that we give them. And so as adults, it's our responsibility to be rethinking these things and then bringing children up under us to have those same concepts. When I think about my life as a child and as a teenager, there were no real elders of what I would consider rewilding that I could mm -hmm. find. And I spent my teen years seeking them out, trying to find them, only to find a few folks later on in life, you know, early 20s, um, but just a small handful. And, you know, the majority of them are indigenous people who still understand these life ways outside of statehood, outside of um, industrial agriculture, outside of compulsory agriculture. And 
So really, you know, to me, it's like, how do I, as an, as a, an adult, find these elders with this knowledge of rewilding, translate it through myself and get it to young people so that when they're my, my age, they'll have way more experience and knowledge and connection than I ever have. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just an interesting thing to, you know, we, with Rewild Portland, we have lots of youth programs. And so in the the way that youth programs are structured through capitalism, it's very challenging to actually instill a lot of this and getting fluency. So a lot of what we do, like for summer camps, for example, is engage with children in a way that will theoretically inspire them and give them a really amazing experience that can be life changing that they'll hopefully end up connecting with through their own and their family or later on in life when they have more autonomy to do so. Um, you know, it's really hard to do a summer camp and teach kids a, a particular skill knowing that there's really no way they're going to actually gain fluency in it in the week that they're with us. And they're probably not going to remember a lot of it because it's not something that's integrated into their lives. So yeah. part of what we want to do is not just engage with children as an organization. We have to engage with families. Because really, you know, we kind of separate out, oh, you know, children are their own. And that's true in a lot of ways. But we've in America anyway, we've really separated the idea of individuals within families. And, you know, whereas a lot of people, for example, who come from like Mexico or something like that, who immigrate here, who are not um, of the of the culture that was instilled here through colonialism, those families think it's insane, for example, to send their child away for a week of summer camp because their mm -hmm. family unit does everything together. So the idea yeah. of, you know, having their kids go off and learn a thing that's not any in any way connected to the rest of the thread of what their family believes and does is like an absurd thought to them. <laughs> so if we want to engage and I mean, to me, that's actually like one of the values of rewilding is is actually turning on turning on this Americanized idea or colonial idea of individualism and really seeing people as members of families and connecting families to ideas and lifeway practices as a unit rather than as individuals, because children are going to pick up on what they see their parents doing and they're not going to pick up on what their parents are not doing. So if a, somebody sends their kid to a, a survival skills camp, I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard parents who do that say, well, my kids got all the survival skills now. Ha ha. We're going to rely on them, you know, when the <laughs> shit goes down. Ha ha. And it's like, actually, no, <laughs> um, you know, like your whole family could be engaged in rewilding activities. And so, um, you know, I have another friend who has a family. And one of the things he said is if you're doing programs, that's just for adults. It's just a social club and it's not a revolutionary act. It needs to be family oriented. And I just mm -hmm. I, I, I read that and I don't have a family, you know, I don't have children, I should say I have a family, I don't have children. And I don't know if I ever will. I have extended kin that are children, um, you know, nieces, nephews, I have friends that are so close, I consider their children like nieces and nephews. Um, mm -hmm. And so in regard, that's another thing of trying to, for me, obliterate the idea of the nuclear family or this idea that, um, you know, the word parenting was invented in like, I think it was the 60s. Like the concept of parenting wasn't a verb until the 60s. There's, uh, and, and there weren't books and all these things, right? Like the idea of like being a parent and parenting is really new and commercialized. And so I don't think that, you know, we have to undo all of this framework that we think of. And it, it's not really parenting as much as it is kin making with everybody. So yes. Yeah. And, and it's it's a holistic picture, right? Like we can't separate out. Um, but when we're thinking about the future and transfer of knowledge, obviously we have to be thinking specifically about children and our families and our extended families and our kin and how what kind of world we want them to be in when they reach our age. And so, you know, there's a or even not just not just um, children, but unborn generations. Right. Like Martine Prechtel, one of the people I consider an elder in rewilding is, you know, one of the main phrases he has is we want to learn how to be good ancestors. You know, we want to be ancestors that people will 
in the future generations look back and be like, wow, I'm really thankful that those people acted and did what they did to make this world a better and more resilient place so that I could exist here, you know, and that that can also extend beyond our human family to our other than human family as well. You know, not that they necessarily think or feel in the same way, but rather just that that context is there, that we are good ancestors in the way that we had good ancestors at some point in our past who carried on traditions of localized resilience. Yes. Yeah. Um, so your book, Rewild or Die, um, I read it a few months ago. It's For the listeners, it's a collection of over 40 essays. And I really like how much detail you cover over such a range of topics from empire to video games to hipsters. <laughs> There's there's no rambling in there. It was so easy for me to just pick oh, up wow. and read an essay. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I call it a toilet book because you can read a you can read a chapter real quick while you're sitting on the toilet. Yes. <laughs> and then if you don't yes, like you it, can. you can use it as yeah. toilet paper when you're done. <laughs> so yeah, when I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh, I just have to interview Peter about some of this, and it was really hard to narrow it down. I've chosen um, just two essays that I'd like for us to talk about today. Um, so your essay on agriculture and your essay on schooling. So to start with with agriculture, could you explain for us the difference between primary succession and secondary succession? So, yeah, ecological succession is the process of barren rock becoming a climax forest, essentially, or just the... The regeneration of disturbed landscapes. So mm -hmm. forest succession, a, dis, a landscape gets disturbed. Say it's a volcano, um, a flood, a meteor, a forest fire. <clears throat> Once the landscape is disturbed, the process of regeneration is what we call succession. And we call it succession because we notice the phases that happen in succession um, toward creating more biodiversity and biomass, specifically those two things. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're interrelated, right? So biomass, you know, you could have one cedar tree, for example, that is seven feet wide and 200 feet tall. That is a lot of biomass, but it's not a lot of biodiversity because it's just one tree, right? A little hummingbird perched on a cedar tree is more diversity than the cedar tree by itself, but not a lot more biomass because the hummingbird is very tiny, right? So biomass and biodiversity are both very important things that are they're important for ecological health um, or equilibrium. It's hard to project some of these concepts into ecosystems because they're in constant flux. And so what we look at is like how much stress is happening within an ecosystem. And there are big disturbances and there are little disturbances. So um, and each one there's a disturbances between species, right? If a deer is um, browsing on some grass, it's disturbing that grass. But both of those animals and plant are going to evolve together so that their disturbances find a way to connect together and exist in the long term. So the grass is constantly evolving and the deer are constantly evolving. And there's this sort of interplay and dance between, you know, predator and prey in all aspects of ecological systems. Forest succession is the regeneration of these larger disturbances. And so we can see the same process, not necessarily in the framework of predator prey, but in disturbance and regeneration, right? Um, is a more sort of over-encompassing idea that isn't just specific to plants and animals, but is specific to whole ecosystems and even solar systems and everything, right? Disturbance and regeneration. Now, with forest succession, the first phase is called primary succession. So you have a forest fire come through and it burns everything. The first plants that come up are um, what, generally speaking, we call annuals. Uh, well, first, there's actually lichens. Uh, to you know, If it's barren rock, you're going to have lichen and other things that come in and hold on to the rock and eventually build some soil there enough for um, annuals. So annuals are plants that only live one year. The seed germinates, the plant comes out, it flowers, seeds, and the whole plant dies, root to stem to flower. 
Then the seed the next year, same thing. Um, then you've got biennial plants. They live two years. That first year, they usually grow a long taproot and store energy through photosynthesis. Their leaves generally stick to the ground. Um, and then the second year is when they'll shoot up a stalk, flower, seed, and die. Then you've got perennials. Perennials um, will also grow deeper taproots, and they live all year. They live, you know, multiple years. They can live for a really long time. You've got woody perennials, which are like trees and shrubs. And then you've got just like regular plant perennials who not, don't even necessarily have much wood and they can even die back. Like the plant parts, the reproductive and photosynthesis parts can die back throughout the year. So I think of like stinging nettle as a great example. Um, you know, it's rhizomal, it's perennial. So it, it exists for the most part underground. Like most people think of plants, they think of what we can see, but the real, um, you know, what we see is just basically the mouth and the sexual organs of plants. It's reproduction and breathing and eating, right? But the rest of the actual plant, like the body, the, the energy of the plant mostly lives underground. And so with perennial, if it's a perennial, even if it's an annual, you know, that the same is true. Uh, but, but per, with perennials, they exist, they persist, right? So a stinging nettle will shoot every year, sends a new stalk with leaves, new flowers, seeds, and then the whole stock dies back. The rhizomes stay alive. It goes dormant in the winter season. So it is adapted to the seasonal disturbance and regeneration, if that makes sense. So seasonally, the disturbance is obviously winter and the temperatures changes, right? That disturbance can kill it off. So it goes dormant during that time period. And then when it's the right temperature for it, how it's evolved within this cycle of disturbance, it emerges seeds, you know, flowers and seeds, and then dies back again. Now, there are also plants that the heat is the disturbance. And so they'll try to, you know, get somewhere in between that hot and cold and vice versa, right? So all of these things have adapted to these cycles of disturbance. So succession is kind of looking at primary and secondary succession and how all of the different life forms exist with on, on that cycle of succession. Now, the cycle... What the implication here is, is that succession as a cycle is important to keep the flow of that cycle, not to arrest the development or arrest the regeneration or arrest the disturbance. So what and two great examples of this. So forest fire is a disturbance that can happen on a massive scale or on a small scale. So indigenous people across the world figured out that they could create these micro disturbances with fire once people mastered fire and alter landscapes on a on a massive level but also prevent huge forest fires from happening right and so these micro disturbances there's so many different plants and animals that became adapted to these disturbances you know pine trees for example they're fire adapted the only way that their fir cones or the pine cones will germinate. Their seeds actually have to be burned in order to actually grow a new plant. That's how much they've been adapted to live with this disturbance. So um, now what you have is this inversion where we are arresting the disturbance of fires. So, you know, here in the United States, as soon as colonialism happened, they started fire suppression. They stopped indigenous people from burning. Right now, the entire state of California is essentially on fire because of that policy. Um, you know, 200 years of fuel building up over and over again. And, and then they, you know, intent in, unintentionally, all of those plants are adapted to these micro fires. And so the whole landscape wants, needs, and is used to fire. But instead of working with that system, they suppressed it. And now what we have are these massive wildfires that are out of even the control of you know, industrial uh, machinery and mechanization, you know. So the inversion of that is the suppression of growth. So when agriculture started and, and why agriculture is, why it's important to understand the implications of agriculture is that agriculture means literally field tilling. If you go back, agra means field. And a field is that primary succession. A field is a meadow. You know, it's when those primary plants, the annual plants are coming up for the first time 
and creating soil that will eventually lead to their own demise. Because, you know, in primary succession, all of those plants are building the way toward secondary succession. Once there's enough soil, once there's enough shade and the temperature of the soil is right, those secondary succession plants have evolved to live in those conditions. And then they start to emerge. That's when we see shrubs and trees and forest lands and woodlands and then eventually climax old growth. Um, and then they die. So the other thing is that it's a mosaic. Right. The most biodiverse places are the mosaics where you have all of these different ecotones all interwoven with one another. So it's not that climax forest is good and barren rock is bad, but rather we want to see a mosaic of all of these different ecosystems blending in with one another. So it's not a linear path or, you know, this square of soil that we've blocked out with rope and, and cordoned off is the old growth forest. No, what we want is a mosaic, a landscape of mixed um, ecosystems. And that's where you see the most biodiversity, not necessarily the most biomass, but definitely um, biomass in regard to soil building. So, you know, that's a huge thing of an old growth tree falls over. Yeah. When it was a tree, the biomass was only in the, stored in the form of this living tree. But as soon as that old growth tree falls over, all of the carbon that's been stored in that is going to break down and become soil. That carbon is not going to go back into the air. So you have this interchange, too, of this carbon cycle, right, where um, for generations and generations, trees and plants and, and grass, actually, perennial grass is one of the biggest um, carbon storage uh, plants there is, almost more so than an old growth forest, because they can outlive old growth by far, and their roots are constantly growing and dying back. So grasses, perennial grasses, not annual grasses, those will only live one year and die. Perennial grasses actually can take out tons of carbon and put it in and create soil just by their roots growing and dying back based on forage. So, you know, every time a plant gets chewed on from above, part of its roots are going to die back so that it doesn't have to send that same amount of energy back and forth. And so you have these massive grazing animals like European bison or American bison that are chewing on these perennial grasses that are then being stored in the ground that are that are then releasing those roots and releasing the carbon into the soil. So, you know, um, when agriculture first started, we at the Neolithic time period, which is t 12 to 10,000 years ago, we see a, a we see actual human made human impacted climate change began with agriculture. Um, and the reason we see that is because we can see the graph of soil loss and soil damage and deforestation. So we are cutting down forests in order to grow fields um, through for annuals. So if you think about the majority of agriculture is spent toward grains. Grains, wheat and rice specifically are annuals that and you know amaranth and millet and buckwheat and um, you know all of these annual grains, have to be constantly maintained. And so with that comes constant deforestation, which comes the invention of a weed. So in regard to regeneration, weeds are simply just plants that are part of this forest succession, ecological succession. They are part of the regeneration phase. So what agriculture does is it arrests forest succession and that arrest of development creates the concept of weeds because weeds are just part of succession. It's a plant you don't want growing somewhere for whatever reason. Whereas if you're working with succession, weeds are your friends, right? So oh. agriculture, you know, and, and here's to say that the word cultivation nowadays just means conscious manipulation of the land. The word comes from the root word colere, which is Roman uh, Latin for to till the soil. So agriculture literally meant tilling the soil to grow grains, annual grains, field culture, field tillage. Now cultivation actually just means, um, you know, conscious manipulation of the landscape. So when I say agriculture, I want people to know I'm not saying agriculture is the same thing as conscious manipulation of the landscape. Horticulture is also utilizing conscious manipulation of the landscape, but done so in a way that works with the flow of succession. Right. So go ahead. Yeah. So 
the way we're practicing today with agriculture is monocropping, which is primary primary succession that we're just repeating and preventing from progressing to secondary succession, which is horticulture, right? Well, horticulture incorporates all phases of succession from disturbance to regeneration. So primary plants are also an aspect of horticulture. Ah, okay. The thing about horticulture is that it utilizes geography and microclimates and things like that. It doesn't, in a sense, you could look at it as terraforming, but it's terraforming with the systems that are already geographically there. Agriculture begins in a place where it's called the alluvian plain. So geographically, alluvian plains are river deltas where the land is relatively flat and every year the land floods, bringing in silt from the mountains and depositing silt and essentially fertilizer. So it's a constant disturbance. So in a floodplain, you don't really have this forest succession, right? Because the disturbance of the flood in the river delta is constant. And so a river delta is a perfect place to practice agriculture that is based on a way that is succession because the river is just doing it, right? All you have to do is go in there and harvest the food. The river is preventing, there's no such thing as a weed because the river every year floods and any plants like that are going to get washed away. And then the ones that can exist there are going to be the ones that grow. The problem is when you try to export that type of livelihood out of a river delta through irrigation and tilling the soil, because what you're doing then is removing those geographical disturbances and imposing them on landscapes where they are that they're not a part of. And so states, the main like component of this is that the only reason you would ever do this is specifically to control other humans and create a, a massive wealth for other for an elite. Um, the only civilizations are are grain based, really. Um, there are tuber-based horticulturalist societies um, that have similar problems, but nowhere near the growth, the exponential growth comes from this power dynamic. And the power dynamic is only possible with grains. This is explained explicitly and beautifully, beautifully and very eloquently in the book Against the Grain by James C. Scott. Um, mm-hmm. Highly recommend that book. It goes through not the ecological su- succession topic that I was just talking about, but specifically how agrarian states are formed through agriculture and grains. Um, he doesn't really get into succession as much as I I, I would like. And that's more my thing anyway. But um, he's not necessarily all offering alternative life ways where that's definitely obviously part of rewilding to me. Um you know, that that slice of the pie is something he carries on very well. So I recommend if anybody's interested in kind of going down that rabbit hole, um, you know, definitely read Against the Grain by James C. Scott. Yeah. I mean, monocropping seems like um, such an effective, uh, from, from a capitalistic perspective, to focus all the energy on one just on one crop in one place, but obviously it has that degradation effect over the long term. Absolutely. Well, and even in the short term, because you have, when when you create a monocrop, you create the perfect conditions for pests because every animal has something that it eats. And if you create a huge larder of something that an animal eats, like a bug, of course they're going to go buck wild. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, of course they're going to grow. So then what do you have to do if you're trying to control for, I mean, so the reason why annuals are important to state societies is because of taxation. Perennials, especially fruit uh, and nut trees, you don't necessarily, you know, nut trees, for example, acorns, uh, walnuts, they all have masting years and it's completely randomized. So in order to subsist off of that, the subsistence practice has to be varied. You can't rely on nut crops year to year. You can't rely on perennials to be producing the same amounts year to year. Now, if you're in a small scale society, that doesn't matter because you have a diverse amount of food. But as soon as Mm. you go into grains, you have to monocrop them because they are the only, that's the way that you get a reliable amount of grain to tax year to year from your subjects as an elite class. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. So that is why, I mean, that is in part one of the reasons why civilizations and hierarchies are so reliant upon grains and monoculture for specifically monoculture because they want to grow it in mass quantities and they want to control it, right? So then you have to have other control mechanisms like pesticides, herbicides, the invention of weeds, which is why agriculture is so absurd because of the amount of labor that goes into it. <laughs> no one in their right mind would do this. And if you look throughout history, no one did. The people that ended up being forced to work in the fields and the people who still work in them today are essentially slaves or, you know, very, very, uh, they're, they're captives. And, and that could be captive to an economic situation or it could be physical, literal chattel slavery where they have like specific deeds of ownership to different individuals, you know, but like here in the United States, migrant workers, like the only law that doesn't apply to wage laws in the United States is agricultural labor, which is why all of these agricultural fields, you have illegal workers working for pennies, picking vegetables all day long. It's the only like unregulated labor force. And that is an extension of, you know, the, the ancient, ancient history of slave labor for agriculture. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess you've kind of touched on this because I wanted to ask about food storage and population explosion. But I thought maybe it would be better if you explain the difference between immediate return and delayed return hunter-gatherers. Yeah. yeah. So in the 70s, James Woodburn, an anthropologist, coined the term immediate return hunter-gatherers and delayed return hunter-gatherers. In the the theory being that when he was observing all of these different hunter-gatherer societies that he was studying, he noticed that the ones who didn't store food, who lived essentially in like environments, geographical environments, where they could just harvest food whenever they were hungry year round, that they were the most egalitarian societies that he had ever come across. And those that had a delayed return, so the were the ones who had to store food um, for periodic time period, you know, basically geography and, and subsistence strategies um, were the ones that had more conflict and more hierarchies. So the idea here is it's environmental psychology, right? If your food is everywhere in your landscape year round and you don't have to think about it, when you're hungry, you just wander out somewhere and you go and eat it. You don't have to worry about it. There's no scarcity mindset because it exists everywhere in the landscape at all times. Nature provides. But as soon as you switch to food storage, now you've exerted all of this energy to accumulate. The problem here is accumulation. And again, this comes down to like the very basic framework of consumption. You've gone out and you've accumulated all of these resources and now you're storing them in a place. It automatically requires that you have to be sedentary to an extent um, and it requires that you have to start guarding your larder. Again, if you think about the monoculture, you've created a, a massive, by going out and gathering all this food that is food for other animals and bringing it back to one place, you've just done a whole bunch of labor for the, for the benefit of all of these other animals and plants. And so you're going to have to deal with pests. You're going to have to deal with thieves. You're going to have to deal with all of these things, right? Like everybody's going to want to get in there and get that food. And so automatically you have, um, unequal distribution of that food. You have people guarding the food and you have people who want it. You have conversations about who gathered it and how much labor and all these different things that start going into that conversation instead of sharing, now you're hoarding, right? So immediate return hunter-gatherer societies, which is the theoretical evolutionary adaptation for Homo sapiens, the environment and cultural adaptation for Homo sapiens, is immediate return where we were able to get our food anytime, any place in the landscape that we wanted and share it with one another. Now you've got food storage where we're hoarding food and preventing one another from getting it. That automatically increases conflict. An interesting situation occurred with chimpanzees where Jane Goodall's first five years of research, which she barely ever cited, 
she barely ever saw them engage in violence. Not to say it didn't exist, not to say that immediate return hunter-gatherers or chimpanzees living in foraging troops don't ever have violence. That's absurd, right? There's mm. We're animals. Conflict exists. Violence is part of our everyday experience. However, how much violence occurs, how much trauma occurs, that is a completely different type of equation. What kinds of trauma are occurring day to day, right? What happened was a researcher started to go and look at Jane Goodall's earlier research. And what she found was Jane Goodall's early research where Jane was following chimpanzees through the forest and creating blinds had barely any violence among the chimpanzees and other primates and apes that existed alongside them. As soon as Jane Goodall created feeding stations, which was five years into her research, immediately she saw an increase in the violence, so much so that she noted it in her own journals, eventually creating the situation where another a chimpanzee troop completely killed another chimpanzee troop, like colonial style. <laughs> Jane Goodall created this situation. And this woman went on and studied all of these other groups that were similarly um, studying chimpanzees and found the same situations occurred. And she compared and contrast our primate relative, our closest primate relative, to our theoretical evolutionary adaptation culture of immediate return hunter-gatherers and was able to compare and contrast and find very stark similarities. That's not to say that um, those threads are, you know, um, scientific evidence but it's anecdotal yeah. and interesting to think about the kinds of psychology and our societies and how that can frame and create and alter our behavior as individuals working within these larger cultural frames that we don't even know, that we are completely oblivious to because we grew up in them, right? It's like fish don't yeah. talk about water, right? Mm. <laughs> they live in water. And when you grow up in an environment you exist in that environment. You don't even think about it. You don't talk about it. It's just the thing that you exist within. And so when you grow up in a delayed return society as an immediate return biological human, there's this disconnect where you might be thinking something is wrong here all the time, but you think that you're the crazy one, right? And you're labeled with all of these different psychological issues or trauma or whatever, and you can't explain why. And then later on, you learn that there's this larger and cultural that is encompassed beyond our ability to really alter that we have to exist within. Yes. Yeah. What about groups who would occasionally store food items for a short period of time, like for winter, or they would store, store tools for specific tasks for the next time they return to that area? Is that immediate return or delayed return? So there's a difference Okay, so here's a really great example. Um, those terms are not cut and dry. They're they're cut and dry as ideas. They're not cut and dry as an individual, as a group of people, as a larger group of groups. People are constantly shifting their subsistence strategies. So you could have one group or one person be storing at a per certain time of the year and then not at another time of the year. So in one point of the year, their immediate return and another point of the year, their delayed return, right? So you have like an ebb and flow between these kinds of subsistence strategy. This doesn't necessarily mean that this, you, you know, we really want to define a thing as one or the other, right? But it's really hard to do that when you're actually on the ground looking at these strategies, unless the geographic location makes it so much so that they are immediate return year round, right? And what we see is that when people store food, we see an increase in conflict, both with animals and plants that want to get that stored food and with other human individuals and groups that want that food as well. And one of the things that James C. Scott lays out in the beginning, you know, that, that states had a really hard time, civilizations in their early stages had a really hard time dealing with pastoralists and nomadic hunter-gatherers because to a nomadic hunter-gatherer a past an agriculturalist civilization storing food in a granary that's just another source of food for you <laughs> and so they were constantly raiding that you know it's like hey there's a shit ton of food in there 
we're nomadic. We don't have to stick around and guard it, right? We can go eat anywhere else, but here's this great thing. Like, let's go in and take that food, right? And so you just immediately have this conflict because there's no concept of ownership either, right? Not in the way that we think of it yeah. as of today, right? That is a construct of these particular societies that store food, that create ownership, that create these types of, it's different than like territorialism um, in a sense, right? And so, you know, that that's why we have so much of the, the mythology of barbarians, you know, and and heathens and pirates and all these people, because life was actually pretty good for those democratic free people who had the ability to move and migrate and, and raid these agriculturists who slaved all day long to grow the grain for this elite class of people who hoarded it. Yeah, <laughs> And so part of that's where you start to see, you know, the fortifications built around cities and to defend the granary, not even necessarily to defend the farmers who exist outside, but to but to defend the the food and the elite class from these, um, you know, the Great Wall of China, for example, was not built just to keep the Mongolians out. It was also built to keep the Han Chinese in. Because they wanted their they they wanted to keep their labor class in to keep farming for them. Why the hell would you keep farming if life was so much better on the outside? Yeah, that's another part that uh, you know, James Scott goes into in in his book Against the Grain. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna add that to my list. So I think there's this widespread belief that the natural continuum is for foragers to pro progress to agriculture, but that's not right. And so how did we initially get to this state of agriculture instead of, well, horticulture? Um, well, I mean, it has to do with the, the powerful elites being able to create a situation in which they gained the upper hand. And what they were able to do was amass enough wealth to create a military class and the military class was originally like mercenaries that they would hire out of, you know, one group of quote unquote barbarians over another. And so, you know, again, hunter gatherers, barbarians, pastoralists, all of these people interplaying with small state developments. Um, eventually that that interplay led to the point where states were able to hold down and maintain a military class that could then force everyone else in the world to farm for them. Hmm. And it's a perpetual feedback loop at this point, because what you have is what we consider like taxation today. Yeah. Taxation started as, you know, the word tribute. Uh, and, you know, a tribe actually was a taxable group by the Romans. The word tribe, where that comes from is the Roman elite had three tribes and within that branches. And that those were the group, the different groups that they were taxing. And so what they were doing with that tax was then turning it around and giving it to a military that then forced everybody to continue to work for them. And again, these systems were collapsing and they, they are under constant threat. And we're just living in a moment right now where it doesn't feel that way because states have had this monopoly on violence through, um, in particular, the last hundred years through the oil boom. And so for us, it feels like there's this state stability, that this is the way it always has been and that there's this great length of progress. But that is a that is a very, very delicately constructed mythology. States are in constant states of collapse. They are fragile. And this one right now, you know, many of them right now are at the, on the brink of collapse. We're, I mean, we're at peak oil. Uh, mm. You know, the, the power structure, the, the apparatus technological apparatus that the states have had for the last hundred years is failing. The environment is failing. Crops are failing. We've created climate change through agriculture that is, you know, going to create its own collapse through the inability to grow crops or maintain regularity and predictability with annuals due to fires and hurricanes and tidal waves or tsunamis, just all the things that are not, not necessarily tidal waves because earthquakes, but you know, um, <laughs> all of the climate weather patterns that are going to be destroying crops, like all of those predictable things are what the state relies on in order to stay in control. Disease, you know, one of the things that kills states is disease. They were able to create modern medicine and antibiotics and all these different things. But the further and further we get along and the, the, the more wealth is amassed 
in the few and the more, you know, the lar- the more poor people are, like we can't afford healthcare. It's not being distributed. It's not. So even these things like the pandemic that we're in right now, this will crush states, even one that isn't as detrimental as the bubonic plague, for example. This is still going to crush states' abilities to maintain their monopoly on violence because that relies on these grain productions and food production, and that whole system is failing. So why did we stop being immediate return hunter-gatherers? That is the million-dollar question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And there is no one answer. There are many, you know, the the thing, why did anybody do anything is, um, you know, everybody wants to have the one thing. How is it that we were able to do this? Well, you know, fire, humans made fire. That's what separates us. That's what made all of this shit happen. You know, (laughs) not necessarily, right? There's, we have opposable thumbs. We wouldn't have been able to create fire necessarily without opposable thumbs or the brain size or creating stone tools or, you know, I mean, there's just so many things. It's a cascade and a complexity of coalescence of various things that create the worlds that we live in. So we'll never know what all of the shifts that occurred to make people start storing food on the level that they did, um, to start modifying landscapes on the level that they did. Megafauna extinctions have been a massive part, I think, in humans trying to adapt to other subsistence strategies that are more plant-based. So for, you know, tens of thousands of years, humans subsisted off of mastodon and megafauna, huge animals. So I think a large part of our economic system was animal-based. And when those megafauna started to go extinct, humans had to seek out other food. And I, I, you know, it's it's hard to say one way or the other what really created all of the situation, all of those cascades that led to horticulture, that led to intense. It's called intensification of of food production. So, in this, you know, scale of how much effort people are putting into the environment to get the food they need, hunter gatherers only do two to three hours a day. Immediate return hunter gatherers only have to put in two to three hours a day to get the food that they need to subsist, whereas agriculturalists have to do eight to 12 hours, right? Yeah. So then they get a much less, less diversity as well. Less diversity and less in less return, actually. Um, yeah. So, you know, and you just have so much, there's lots of reasons for all of that, right? Like, um, but it's really hard to try to figure out why. Um, and yeah, I think it just has to do with environmental pressure and population pressure of plants and animals and climate pressure. Again, there was a coalescence of things that shifted people's subsistence. And we keep seeing those different things happening to the point where 10,000 years ago, you know, we see a massive shift towards agriculture. Uh, We call it so, so massive that it's called the Neolithic revolution. Um, And it's, you know, the, the new stone, neo means new, lithic means stone. So the Paleolithic is the entirety of human history dating back 3.3 million years. <laughs> Paleo means old. Um, and the oldest stone tools are 3.3 million years old, which actually predate Homo habilis, which is the first human. Homo habilis yeah. is dated at two and a half million years old. Um, But theoretically, if we're talking about stone tool use, which was actually why they called Homo habilis Homo was because that ape was using stone tools. So they were like, that's the first human. In the last 10 years, they found way older stone tools by the Australopiths, uh, Australopithecus. So what that means is, are we going to rechange? Are we going to change our definition of what it means to be human? Is does human actually go back into the Australopiths? Are we going to rename the Australopiths with the Homo genus because they can use stone tools? You know, Homo habilis, the first human, means handyman because of the stone tool use, right? So Homo sapiens, you know, we're 200,000 to 400. You know, there's lots of evidence that kind of muddles the waters of how old homo sapiens are absolutely 150,000 years no question 200,000 high probability 
300,000, 400,000 evidence exists that suggests Homo sapiens were alive in the same biological way back then that we are today. We have not changed in dramatic ways, right? Cranial capacity yeah. may be here and there, but, you know, Neanderthals had bigger brains, et cetera. But, um, you know, we just haven't changed all that much in a, in a long time. So I forgot why I was going on this rant. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Why food storage? Um, yeah. Yeah, something happened, a cascade of effects, you know, that that changed. And we just don't know. And we'll never we'll never actually know the answer to that question. Yeah. But the, the Paleolithic starts three and a half million years ago, almost, if you're looking at the, the latest uh, stone tool technology and ends only 10 to 12,000 years ago. So the entirety of humanity's existence is called the Paleolithic. And the Neolithic is just the last 10,000 years, right? Um, the yeah. new stone, which and those new stone tools were specifically designed for deforestation. You see ground axes, you see um, deforestation and grain processing. You see mortar and pestle. You see uh, what's called ground stone technology. And that is all based on deforesting and growing and eating grains. And that started with the Neolithic 10,000 years ago. Now, 5,000 years ago um, is when we see the definitive, what James C. Scott calls states, I call civilizations, because um, you see writing develop in multiple areas. And that writing is uh, developed specifically to catalog the grain that is in the granaries in states. You know, mathematics and writing developed from the same system, which was to catalog um, the grains in a granary for that unequal distribution from the elites to the non-elites and slave class. Hmm. I love just hearing these, uh, just another connection. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's just fascinating, you know? <laughs> mm. Okay. So I think that's a pretty solid covering on agriculture. Do you think, is there anything significant we've missed that you think we should cover quickly? I mean, there's always more down the rabbit hole and I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that's probably good. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.